The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Hi, this is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You're listening to KUCI Irvine 88.9, Hanging with the Anteaters. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer. And my guest today is Director of Mindfulness Services at UCI's Susan Samueli Integrative Health Institute, psychologist Jessica Drew DePaz. She also is helping launch a new Health Institute mental health program where she will serve as a clinical psychologist. And according to a recent written piece she wrote, she's also a white European, primarily Irish American upper middle class, 51 years old, agnostic, heterosexual, able-bodied woman. We'll get more into those details later in just what she's up to in terms of mindfulness. A big, bright welcome, Jessica Drew DePaz. How are you today? I am doing well, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you giving me a chance to be on your show. You're very welcome, and it's super great to have you. Um, Let's just start from the beginning. Where did you grow up, and what did you like to do when you were a kid? I grew up in Irvine. My parents moved to Irvine in the mid-60s. They knew that ground had just been broken at UC Irvine, and they thought it would be a wonderful place to live and raise a family in a university town. So I was born in 1969, a year after my sister, Heather Phillips, who was born in 1968. Where did your folks move from when they moved to Irvine? Where did they move from? They had been living in Long Beach at that point. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's pretty amazing that, you know, a young couple would be like, oh, wow, this UC school is going to be open there. And Let's move there. That will be a great environment. That's very (laughs) intentional. I I think you have a strong sense of your parents from that. Yeah, it was very intentional, especially when, you know, I think about the fact that there was almost nothing else in Irvine at that time. I mean, there was. There was no 405 freeway that went through it. The nearest grocery store was in Corona Del Mar. (laughs) Right. Uh, I actually grew up in Orange, so we would drive to Corona Del Mar to go to the beach. And, you know, you couldn't see anything. There was farmhouses and one gas station. It was hard to find UCI just because it was so tucked in. Exactly. There were Were cows. Right. Were you in University Park? Exactly. In University Park, which was really the first housing tract built in Irvine. Right. My parents' home cost (laughs) $22,000. Right. <laughs> right. A very different time. Yeah, my folks bought their house in Orange in 63, and I think it was like 17,000. Well, good. So you're growing up in Irvine, and back in those days, there weren't a whole lot of things around. Do you remember going to UCI as a kid? 
You know, I didn't go there much as a kid. I mean, we did our banking near UC Irvine. My parents banked at B of A, and there was right. a B of A right across the street. So I remember, yeah. I remember that. Do you remember that building? I do. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my recollection more as a child. But I did attend UC Irvine. So, you know, I grew up in Irvine, was there my whole life. I went to Vista Verde School from kindergarten through eighth grade. And then I went to university high school, which is now just kitty corner to UCI. And then my first two years as an undergraduate were spent at UCI. So I was a freshman and sophomore there majoring in psychology. Mm. So when did you start thinking that psychology is what you would be majoring? Was it in high school or did you decide during college? Or yeah, what? it was in high school. I took a psychology class my junior year. It really spoke to me. I knew while I was in that class, this is what I want to be doing. I love psychology. I'm all about what makes people tick and feelings and talking about how we feel and feeling better when we do that. And so it just all made sense for me. And I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Good. Did you say you went your first two years at UCI? Yes. My first two years, my parents let me and my sister know that they could not afford to send us both away to college at the same time for four years together. So they said, if you stay home your first two years, and then if you want to transfer, they could afford that. So we started in Irvine and then we both transferred away. Where'd you transfer to? I transferred to UC Santa Barbara. And you got your undergrad in psychology at UCSB? Exactly. Great. And then what happened after you graduated? Yeah, then I actually came home for a year and I worked for that year. I had two jobs. One was at a school in Irvine as a counseling assistant. And I also was a nanny during that time with a family in Newport Beach that I'm still very close to. They had three little boys. So I was working for them about 30 hours a week and out of school for 20 and taking my GREs. And I applied to graduate school and was admitted to the California School of Professional Psychology in Los Angeles. So you got your PhD I actually have a PsyD, which is a PhD is a doctorate in the philosophy of psychology. And a PsyD is a doctorate in psychology. And it's more of a clinical doctorate. Really, it's looking at the research and then applying the research. Gotcha. So once you received that degree, when did you start to work full time in that area? Well, even during, you know, I had to do internships during that experience during my four years in school. So I, you know, worked at a community clinic. I worked at Orange County Mental Health with children and youth. These were sort of like 20 hour a week positions. I worked at UC Riverside Counseling Center with students 20 hours a week. That was in my fourth year of school. And then I actually did an extra year of school that I didn't need to do (laughs) in order to have what's called an APA internship. You know, it's an American Psychological Association accredited internship. And I did that at UC Santa Cruz. And that was full time in their counseling center. So doing therapy with students. And what did you do after that? Well, 
I might want to intertwine a piece of the story that really started for me in graduate school. You know, in your introduction, you were kind of sharing about my background or, you know, my like diversity characteristics. And when I was studying at at CSPP, I actually applied to be in the multicultural department. It was specifically called the multicultural community department. And so really all of the classes that I took were focused on not just psychology, but on providing multiculturally competent services, which really consisted of learning a lot about race and ethnicity and gender and sexual orientation and social class and religion and how these play out in society and impact people's lives and a lot about the isms and, you know, racism and sexism and heterosexism and all of these things. Yeah, um, yeah. What, around what time period is this? Like what year? Yeah, I started my graduate school in 1993. Okay. Yeah. So mm-hmm. oh, this is really early, early stuff. You know, it's so prevalent now, particularly in the last year, but, uh, that was yeah. uh, brand new stuff being dealt with back, back. I mean, not totally brand new, but but it, more. Um, I don't know. How, do you can you describe what I'm? Can you describe for me what I'm trying yeah. to say? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I relate so much to what you're trying to say because actually, I mean, it really became such a huge part of my life. It became my whole life was focused on these issues. I would say. I went into graduate school, you know, wanting to be a psychologist and I came out, I think really more interested in being a social activist. And that didn't go over so well with the people I had grown up with in Orange County. (laughs) You know, I was living in Orange County even while going to graduate school, but I was commuting to Los Angeles for my studies. So I was still very much around many of the people I had been raised with. And this transformation I was going through, beginning to really focus on these issues was, you know, I was met with a lot of like, why are you studying about racism when that doesn't even exist anymore? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I mean, it was a very sort of prevalent reaction in the circles that I was in to the point where I really began to feel much more connected to people in Los Angeles that I was meeting through my studies and through work I was doing in LA. And it really came down to me deciding I don't want to live in Orange County anymore. If, if this is sort of how, like in general, the thinking is around here, which by the way, I do feel that things have changed and I am living in Orange County again, (laughs) but I made my exit from Orange County when I was, I mentioned that year that I went to UC Santa Cruz I had also been offered a position at UC Irvine Counseling Center, which, by the way, is actually known really in psychology circles and, and, you know, in the nation as being one of the schools that really that APA internship is very focused on racial identity development. Dr. Joe White, who was a professor at UC Irvine and is really known as the father of Black psychology. He really founded the UCI Counseling Center and made sure that everyone that was working there was very focused on on racial identity development. 
And it was almost a perfect fit for me to go there in terms of what I was studying and wanted to do. But I think I was so kind of fed up <laughs> with, with uh, the mentality of many of the people I was spending time with that I was like, I need to get out of Orange County and go live someplace else where people are really, in my mind, valuing diversity more. Mm. And so I really made a big announcement to everyone. I'm leaving. I'm never coming back. <laughs> Not that anyone wanted me to come back, really. Um, they were probably like, good. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> and so I left and I took the position in Santa Cruz. And then after that, my next position was at University of San Francisco Counseling Center for a year. That's where I did my postdoc. And I just fell in love with San Francisco at that time and being in a city that was just filled with so much diversity and and also people that seemed to on a whole be valuing that diversity got you excuse me just for a moment jessica while i update our listeners ladies and gentlemen if you're just joining us you're listening to uci conversations i'm your host kevin bossenmeyer and my guest today is uci susan samueli integrative health institute psychologist Jessica Drew DePaz, who is the director of mindfulness services there. And we're just getting to know her and about her area. And we're just getting into, she's accepted a position before coming to UCI. Is that UC San Francisco? Is that correct, Jessica? It was actually, I did work at UC San Francisco after that one, but my postdoc was at University of San Francisco Counseling Center, working with students, doing therapy with them. Gotcha. How long were you there? It sounds like you really loved it. I loved it. I was in San Francisco for three years. I definitely thought that that is where I would spend the rest of my life. I mean, I still cry when I go to the city and see the city in front of me and just feel so attached to it. You know, the song, I left my heart in San Francisco. I think I really just felt like I I had a great relationship with that city. Yeah. Have you gone back in the last few years at all? You know, I know there's a lot happening there and I know it's changed a lot. And I don't know how I would be feeling about it if I was still living there right now. Yeah, Um, I will say that my wife has, for about the last four years, has commuted to San Francisco mm -hmm. for work. And I used to love San Francisco and I still Mm -hmm. do, but this is the... The difficulty, and I know we're going to get into a lot more details with diversity and and equity and so forth, and I don't know how to say this politically right, but the homelessness issue is, it's confrontive. I mean, it's, you you feel scared. You know, I'm not there in the city anymore, but I'm, but yes, I imagine like, and I know the homeless population has just grown by leaps and bounds and the haves and the have nots, which has always existed, you know, throughout our whole country and throughout every city, but it's gotten even more so. And I don't know exactly the solutions to it, but I know the landscape has changed there. And I really, as with so many places, hope that we can begin to find better solutions to take care of, of all of our people. Gotcha. Well, why don't we backtrack just a little bit? Can you tell us what the Susan Samueli Integrative Health Institute 
is. We certainly hear about it on campus a lot, but can you just give us your perceptions being on the inside of what it is? I'm happy to share about the Institute. What we do is we provide integrative health. So integrative health is a comprehensive approach to care that really considers the patient's unique circumstances. And at the Institute, we achieve optimum health and well-being by combining evidence-based complementary therapies with conventional medicine. So it's really combining these together in order to determine the most appropriate treatment for patients. And so we all know what the conventional Western medicine is, kind of what's been really considered healthcare all along. And the complementary therapies, some of them are more based on Eastern medicine, maybe acupuncture, massage therapy. You know, we have also nutrition counseling, mindfulness, yoga therapy. So we combine all of these offerings to really meet people's needs. And, you know, some of those are also just preventative to begin with, including the classes that we offer. It's not necessarily about having to be sick to come into the clinic. Mm -hmm. It can really just be from a place of wellness and learning tools that support our well-being that are evidence-based. Gotcha. And you're the director of the Mindfulness Services. Is that correct? That's correct. So can you tell us all about that? Sure. So the mindfulness services is really kind of more the retail side of what we do in terms of, I mean, it's not patient services, it's classes for the community. Mm. And those classes are mindful meditation classes. And we have a variety of them. And we also do yoga therapy classes, as well as clinical services. And then we have Tai Chi classes as well. So maybe I'll start with the mindfulness classes. Perfect. I mean, there are several, so I won't go into all of them, but one of our foundational classes is mindfulness-based stress reduction, or it's referred to as MBSR. It's actually taught around the world. It was developed at University of Massachusetts Medical Center by Dr. John Kabat-Zinn, and he developed this in the 1970s. And it's really where the research began on mindfulness. So, you know, mindfulness is an ancient practice that's been taught around the world for thousands of years, but it hadn't really been researched until the 70s. And is it associated with one geographic area of the world or was there one particular person? You know, I think that a lot of people associate it with Buddhism But it's really, there's meditative practices in most all major religions. And so it's really been taught around the world for many, many years. I think it wasn't embraced in the United States until more recently that it's, and it's because I feel like we are such an evidence-based society. We're like, show me the evidence if we're going to bring it into hospitals or schools. And now that there is an evidence base there, we are starting to embrace it more and it's coming more into mainstream society. Gotcha. And did you say the initials, is it NBFR, did you say? It's MBSR. 
So mindfulness-based stress reduction. Oh, okay. Gotcha. So when you say clinical, is that counseling? Yeah. So the clinical side would be more like of a patient service. And our MBSR classes are, I mean, we have patients that come, but we also, you know, have just people throughout the community that sign up to take a class and learn how to practice mindful meditation. And it might help if, I don't know if you want me to kind of take a step back and even define what that is. Please do. Okay. And I'll use John Kabat-Zinn's definition. There's many definitions of mindfulness, but he defines mindfulness as paying attention in a particular way in the present moment and non-judgmentally. So it's really, you know, paying attention to our moment to moment experience and doing so in a, in a non-judgmental way. And, you know, this has many benefits for us because really, you know, even right now, even though our bodies are here, right, our minds can be anywhere and our minds go off to many different places throughout the day. In fact, research at Harvard, they're doing some research on mind wandering and happiness. And they developed an app called Track Your Happiness. And so this app, they have thousands of people in this research study, and the app pings people at various times of the day and asks people, how happy are you on this scale? Or, you know, how are you feeling? And then what are you doing right now? And is your mind on what you're doing or has it wandered? And if if it has wandered, then they ask people, did it wander to someplace pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? Yeah. So... Almost 50% of the time, people's minds are wandering. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's very significant that almost half the time we are not in, we are not in the part of our life that we're actually there for. We have gone to the past. Maybe we're ruminating about something that happened long ago or, or planning for the future, but we're missing our life that is unfolding right now. Yeah. Yeah. I actually, to be truly transparent, I talked to a psychologist yesterday because my mind wanders a lot and I don't go to like a happy place. I go to regret and I can't believe, you know, things that happened 30 years ago. I'm like, you know what? There's something wrong here. I got to go see a counselor. (laughs) Well, you know what? In my mind, you're human, you know, this is where we, this is absolutely where many of us spend our lives is in, you know, regretting or ruminating, right? And, and that's normal that, that, I mean, it's not probably helping you, I'm assuming it sounds like, is that right? No, it's not. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't help me either. And I do it a lot too. So when I learned mindfulness, because there were, you know, a lot of my life, I didn't even know about it. But when I learned it, I learned something that can now help me learn how to interrupt when I go there and how to bring my attention instead into this present moment. Yeah, it sounds very valuable. And what they're showing at Harvard with this research is that where our minds go has a big impact on our level of happiness. 
so they've got all these numbers about people's minds wandering and where they go. And you're right. A lot of people, when our minds wander, you know, we're not usually going off to these like amazing places in our mind. <laughs> right? I mean, who's been there this past year? I don't know. I wish I had been, but you know, we're like, um, am I going to get sick? There's this virus is turning my life upside down or, you know, there's people marching in the streets because we need to wake up to the racism in our country. Or, you know, there's like a lot of hard things happening or the climate change, right? Where there's difficult things that our minds go to. And so that affects also our level of happiness. And by the way, not, I'm not saying we shouldn't be thinking about these things because we should be thinking about all of those things, Mm. but, but it's, it's recognizing when are our thoughts not serving us anymore? Yeah. At at what point, if we are ruminating about something, you know, is it helping, is it serving us or is it not? And if it's not, how do we get out of there? Mm, Right. Right. Very good. Very good. Can we go into, when I read your chapter from this book, I don't know if this was a recent uh, chapter that you wrote, but it's from Developing Cultural Humility, Embracing Race, Privilege, and Power by Miguel E. Gallardo. And Mm -hmm. you tell a story in there that I thought was very powerful, where you had, I think it was at a retreat, and you had you know, the group was made out of different ethnic backgrounds, whites, blacks, Latinos, Asians, and maybe more. And you had people say something to the effect of my ethnic background has strongly affected my life. Do you know what Mm -hmm. I'm talking about? Absolutely. Tell us the whole story. It was very powerful. Oh, well, thank you, Kevin. You are listening to UCI Conversations, and my guest today is psychologist Jessica Drew DePaz, who is an alumni of UCI, as well as a director of mindfulness services at the Susan Samueli Integrative Health Institute. Right now, we are in the middle of talking about a race exploration exercise that she participated in during grad school. It is not only fascinating, but also highly relevant today. Listen up. You know... Up until that point, I mean, I had learned some about multicultural issues in my classes through, you know, college, but it always felt like these issues were really from a distance, right? It was sitting in a class with a professor talking about the research, and it felt like I was learning about the other, like other people who have racism inflicted upon them and sort of as if it had nothing to do with me, right? Like I felt like sort of separate from this. But I mean, at CSPP, they actually very much embrace a different like experiential learning. So you're not just sitting in your seat taking in like this cognitive information. Mm -hmm. So they brought all of the first year students into a big kind of room and And had all of us stand on. mm -hmm. Before you go into that, what, what is CSPP again? Yes. So it's um, California School of Professional Psychology, okay. although and now it is actually part of Alliant University. Okay. And that's up in Los Angeles? There's one in LA, there's one in San Diego, one in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. There's like different branches of it. Okay. So please continue with your story. Okay. So the first year, 
everyone has to take intercultural lab is the name of the class. It's a year long class. And so, you know, one of the things they do early on is bring us into this gigantic room. All of the students are there, very diverse group. And the facilitator makes statements such as being Asian American is a big part of my life, you know, and if that is true for you, walk across the room. And so, you know, a lot of people walked and most people, I mean, I don't know everyone's background by looking at them, but most people who looked Asian American walked across the room Mm -hmm. and then they said, okay, you know, notice how you're feeling, whatever group you're in and what's coming up for you. And then they bring everyone back to one side of the room together. And then they would read, you know, being African American, is a big part of my life. And again, you know, it looked like most people who I thought would be in that group walked and then they came back and they, so they, you know, this went on and then they said, being white is a big part of my life. If that's true for you, walk across the room. And, and I stood there thinking, I mean, I know I'm white, you know, but I don't think about it very right. often. So right. to walk would be a lie. Um, right. So I'm not going to walk. So I didn't nor did anyone else. No yeah. one walked. So no, no and white I, person walked. No white person walked. That's, that is like, you know, cause I would, uh, it, it, it's such an amazing, uh, I, I'm sorry to cut you off in the meme. It's just like, no. back in those days, you'd be like, you wouldn't walk. You're like, you're oblivious <laughs> to it. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Like what, like we were not thinking about it, yeah. but then I, then that of course made me think, well, why are we not thinking about it? But right. everyone else is thinking about it. Right. Well, like, you know, I mean, I had no idea at that moment, but it right. really struck me. And then this class continued on where it wasn't only experiential exercises. We were looking at the research. We were reading the research, delving into it, taught, having group discussions about it. And the research was showing me that, you know, when people go in for healthcare, right, if the doctors, if you give them like, you know, a scenario of the same health scenario, but it's a different name and one name is like a more, you know, white sounding name and one name is a more black sounding name, they give different diagnoses, right, different treatment plans. This is what the research is bearing out. And so, as I started to digest that, it suddenly made a lot of sense to me that I was like, oh, I don't think about it because I haven't had to, because doors are being open for me, not closed for me, you know? For yeah. white people, there's no other group getting preferential treatment or where you would think, oh, well, gosh, why am I not getting that? Because you're white, you're getting it. <laughs> You, mm-hmm, you exactly. get all the doors open you, and believe me, I'm not, I haven't arrived with all, cause this is very confrontive to me, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's how the white experience. And I, I, I think it's very eye opening. Well, I don't know that anyone has arrived nor including myself. <laughs> I mean, even with the work that I did do around it, I, still see so much more work for me to do. So, you know, my, my dissertation was on white racial identity and looking at how do we mobilize. Uh, there's so much I could say on the topic. I'm trying to 
think of how to condense this, but right. I know I can, I, you know, I'm a talker, but, um, I, but I developed a class that was basically looking at race in the United States and looking at white racial identity with the goal of mobilizing really kind of everyone to be involved with, you know, fighting for, you know, racial equality and knowing that it's, it's not only as important that whites be involved in that, that fight, it's critical, you know, and I think, I think a lot of people kind of get it more when they think about an area where maybe they experience oppression. So, you know, I think like if, if someone, you know, maybe a, a, a woman might say like, what, like if you look at women, the women's movement, it's like women who are, who are often involved with leading these movements around women's rights. But like, what about like having men care as much as women did? What if men were like, and, and I think I knew in graduate school, I was like, I could do my dissertation on like women's rights, but there's so many women right now, even around me that were doing their work on that. And I'm like, I think like the best use of my voice is actually to focus on racial equality as a white person that that's where I decided to really invest a lot of my energy. Which it brings us back to in this chapter, you quote Malcolm X saying mm-hmm. you know, what, what can be done. And he encouraged white people to work within their own community. Not mm-hmm. It was almost like discouraging like a black white group. No, no, work within your own community. It, it was powerful. Yeah, he felt like um, that when white people were starting to wake up to racism and the fact that they were a part of it, (laughs) a part of inflicting this on other people, that they often, if they decided they wanted to take action, they would go to communities of color, like, I'm here to help you. Mm. And it was a very expensive it was very paternalistic and like here, I'm here to show you the way. And he said, you know, if well-intentioned white people really want to help in this fight, then go work in your own communities, go help other white people understand what white privilege is and work for racial equality. And that really inspired me when I read those words to say, that's what I want to do with my dissertation is kind of follow that advice. And so I started by interviewing white social activists who had really devoted their lives to combating racism, to try to understand what shifted their own identity over the years to make these changes. Um, And what I learned from those interviews, those things that had happened in their life to maybe like help them move to different racial identity stages, I tried to build those into a curriculum to be taught at the college level. And so really my product that I developed from these qualitative interviews, at, then I developed a 16-week curriculum, like a handbook for an instructor to teach a class about racism, white privilege, combating racism, taking action, a very experiential class and research-based class. And 
I finished it and it went on the shelf in the school library and, and at my house. And then I had the wonderful opportunity when I went to UC Santa Cruz to teach this class during my year there. I actually taught it spring quarter and it was wonderful to take this work and put it out into the world. And actually they asked me to stay and keep teaching it, but I was going to San Francisco. Mm. But my supervisor who had co-taught it with me, Gary Shoemaker, taught the class for 10 more years at UC Santa Cruz. In that first year, what was the reaction of the participants, the students? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. Because when I first developed this class, you know, I was so excited and wanted to teach it. And before my dissertation was signed off as being complete, one of the consultants on my project said, I want you to go through every single exercise and lecture and, you know, film and that you're going to implement in the class. And I want you to predict how people might react depending on their different stages of racial identity development, which by the way, those are models within psychology. There's models for people of color, models that they may go through in terms of shifting their identity and then models that white people might go through. So there's five models for each. So I had to take every single exercise or film and predict from 10 different places in these models of how people might react. And what I realized at the end of that exercise was that most people were going to hate my class. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. there were very few people because depending on their stage of racial identity development, they're probably going to be angry with what I'm sharing with them or feel guilty or be resistant to it in some way or another. So I think I did go in with my eyes open knowing most people probably weren't really going to have a fabulous experience in my class. And I also shifted my goals for it rather than I originally thought, oh, I want someone to come in and have no idea about what's happening and then leave a social activist. And then I really realized that's not going to happen in one quarter. Uh-huh. <laughs> so uh-huh. If I can just shift their like racial identity development from, from maybe not knowing anything to maybe feeling like waking up to realizing what racism really is and how it's playing out, then that's a win that they understand that now, even if they're not an activist yet. Right. Right. It's the process. Here's Mm -hmm. something that I'd be interested in your take on it is four years ago, I interviewed the vice chancellor of equity, diversity, and inclusion. It was Doug Haynes. It was when I was first getting exposed to it. And I was like, even wondering, like, do we really need a vice chancellor in charge of this, you know, this area? (laughs) And I even said to him before the interview, I said I was skeptical and I'll never forget his powerful response to me was be skeptical. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. wow, he just invited me to be skeptical. So we had this great interview to where I thought, you know what, he's the right man in this job. And Mm -hmm. since then, you know, I've, I've really come a long way And then particularly the last year has just been tremendously powerful for all of us. But I will say that I'm confronted with, well, I'm white and I, and I've had this, you know, white privilege Mm -hmm. and you know what? I, 
I mean, I, I hope I don't get slammed out of the, out of, I don't know, wherever, but, um, and I like it. <laughs> I don't, I, I like having, you know, I like being, you know, the perks that I get from that. And gosh, I'm, you know, it's confrontive to me to think to have to give that up. And even though I think it's the right, I, I, I know it's the right thing. Mm-hmm. And I think in the, in this chapter, you talk about how, um, you know, it can benefit all. And I think, yeah, definitely. But I, I think what you say is like, you don't have to give up and, Mm-hmm. And I guess that's the that's the rub for me. I'm mm-hmm. like I don't get how you don't have to give up because because mm-hmm. to me it seems like you you do and 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 maybe and that's that's the mm-hmm. way it has to be. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're going to have a yeah. society of of equality, and inclusiveness, and diversity, then you're going to have to, I think. And I guess that's that's a hard one to to. I mean, I I know it's selfish, but I guess it's no, I so appreciate your honesty. And I'm sure many of the listeners do as well. And that I imagine there's tons of people that relate to this. And I'll just kind of share my response. And and, I mean, again, I like just wanting to start with thanking you for start like sharing where you are at with this. And, um, and and that, yes, I think that many white people do feel like I need to give something up or, and I think many men feel like around, you know, sexism too, like that maybe they need to give things up. And I do write about this in my chapter about an exercise I do in class around privilege. Peggy McIntosh is a white woman who like the first part of her career, she's a professor. She used to be at Wellesley College and she wrote a very seminal article about unpacking the knapsack of white privilege. But she first had written for many years about male privilege and she was very aware of the privileges men have because she's a woman and she could easily see their privileges and was very clear on that. Well, she became chair of her department and she had many women of color in the department that were professors and they came to her and said, oh, we noticed, you know, that the, all of the readings and the classes are written by the authors are white women and we need to have like more women of color speaking and being read, you know, and Peggy said like, well, you know, yes, that's so important, but there's like not room. There's really not room and because the curriculum is set and we've picked these books and articles. And as she was speaking these words, she realized they were the exact same words that the men had said to her when she said, we need more women's voices in other classes. Mm. They said that that's important, but there's not room. And it suddenly dawned on her that she was inflicting the same sort of, you know, a different ism onto other people as the men were to her. And she realized, wow, do I have privileges as a white person that I've never looked at? And she began to write them out over time, which she said was a very painful experience. And then she would wake up in the middle of the night and jot down new privileges she had thought of. Mm. So she has a whole list of male privileges, a whole list of white privileges. 
Well, what I did in my class is I actually put these privileges on flashcards. I did all the male privileges on blue cards, all the white privileges on white cards. I typed them out and I read them and I had a stack for every person in class. And I told the story about Peggy and I read the privileges she's identified. And I said, if this privilege is true in your life, come get a card. You know, and if it's not, uh, you know, I'm not telling white people you have to come get all the white cards. And I'm not telling people of color or men that you have to get all the blue cards, you know, just get a card if it applies to you. And so we did this and there was a huge difference. It was like the white men at the end were holding the most privileges, right? In their hands. These are cards they said they do have these privileges, right? And then the next group was like white women and some men of color. And then the group that had the least were women of color and also some men of color. And then we had a big discussion about it. Like, well, well, what, what is this bringing up for people? You know, and people did say like, you know, some, some people said things like, you know, I feel bad. I feel bad. Or I want to give you some of my, pro- I want to, mm-hmm. I feel bad. And I want to give this to you. And, but then we really asked, well, should you be giving them away? Or is it, okay, I'm just going to take a male privilege right now. Like walking down the street at night and feeling safe. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so that's a male privilege. I mean, I can speak for, I don't feel safe walking Mm -hmm. down the street at night a lot of times. And um, do I want you though, Kevin, to give me your privilege and take it away from you? Do I want you to feel unsafe so I can feel safe? Mm -hmm. No, I want both of us to feel safe. Mm -hmm. I want... I want to feel safe and I want you to feel safe in order for me to feel safe. It shouldn't just be women fighting for that. It should be also men have to do something to make the streets safe for everyone. And so I really think like we do get into this sort of like all or nothing, or there's like a pie and there's only so much to go around, you know, how can we all, you know, people of color have trouble getting into housing, you know, Uh, there there's research on it showing they walk in and they're told the place was rented, but then the white person walks in after them and they're given the key to go look at the place that really is still for rent. Right. Right? Right. How can we have enough housing for everyone? Maybe back to the San Francisco scenario, (laughs) rather than having it to be only for one and not for another. You are listening to UCI Conversations with my guest, psychologist Jessica Drew DePaz, who is the Director of Mindfulness Services at the Susan Samueli Integrative Health Institute. Here we continue our discussion on racism. There's a quote in your chapter about be mindful of race and says, Transforming racism from the inside out. I think this is a quote from, is it King? It wasn't Martin Luther King. There's, it's somebody else. Mm. It says, Do you have the quote? It says, suggests sharing with your children your own version of the story. I would like to, to, telling your child from your own lips, the the truth of our racial Mm -hmm. history about being white and being a member of the white tribe. Years ago, our ancestors did a horrific deed mm-hmm. you know, against yeah. the human race. You really, you know, so, so 
long in our history, it, I th- just from my perspective, we heard this story of slavery, but it was just kind of this thing over there. And then Lincoln freed the slaves. And then it was all over. Even though I will say for a long, long time, I, I was always like, that doesn't really make sense. Like the slaves are free. Like, like in one second, everything was fine after that. Or, you know, we had restoration, but it was relatively fine. But well, we had lynchings, but it was relatively fine. And, you know, you know, this, not even to get into the sexual aspects of slavery and all that. And, and I'm like, that doesn't really ring true for me. How can, how can a race of people just be kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, we had this unbelievably traumatic thing that really happened not all that long ago. Shoot, I was a teenager in the 60s and the the fight, you know, for, you know, Martin Luther King was leading the charge. And I, it was again, it was on TV. It was kind of like that thing over there that was mm-hmm. separate bathrooms separate schools that this quote just talks about you know you know we had this horrendous thing and um it continues you know now we have prisons that seem i don't know what all this this is but it seems that you know black people or ethnic other ethnicities have been (sighs) they've gotten a raw deal Very much so. And, you know, you brought up earlier Vice Chancellor Doug Haynes, and I just want to sing his praises. I think that I um, ended up from that speaking about something, a different topic, but I just wanted to circle back um, because it really connects with what you're saying now. He, I recently took some classes with him. There is a UC Irvine Black Thriving Initiative, and I encourage everyone to check that out. Um, through his Office of um, Inclusive Excellence. Um, and th- there's many initiatives, but there's a Black Thriving Initiative. It's, and, and there's also many, many things happening, but one is education to our whole community. And he has been giving classes. I mean, he's a historian, and I actually um, took two of his classes. There's a, there's a series of three, and it's on like, it's on the history of Black protest and really how these pieces that you're speaking to, we think of as very historical sometimes as, oh, that happened a long time ago. How is that still playing out today? I learned so much in these classes, even though I mentioned my doctorate was around multicultural issues and my dissertation was on anti-racism and combating white privilege. Like I still like, it was, there was so much new information that I learned and This education, you know, it was also just a very emotional place. Um, Like, I just felt teary every time I was in class, just like with sort of of hope, of happiness, of, I mean, there were a couple hundred people in these classrooms from across UC Irvine. It's a faculty and staff Mm. on the Zoom call, listening and talking and caring and wanting to know more, wanting to do better, wanting to figure out, like, how can we do this differently? It's interesting. I feel like just for my own life, you know, this place that I mentioned earlier, I had fled or, and I didn't, haven't shared, you know, I had sort of 
fled Orange County or escaped Orange County. I mentioned that earlier, but I haven't shared, you know, what brought me back. I was living in San Francisco at the time, but my mother was diagnosed with cancer. And that's really what brought me back here. So I came back and now I'm here. This is my home now. (laughs) And it's so amazing to me to be at UC Irvine, to be there, to be working there and to feel like there's such important work being done around these racial issues that still need so much attention. Even today in 2021, clearly there's so much work for us to do. And there is a community of people that are gathering and educating one another and trying to figure out how do we move forward? How do we make UC Irvine a place where really everyone can thrive, not just one group or another. No one needs to give anything up. We can all do this together. We can all thrive together. Wow. Well, and just a, on a side note, you, you said you came back for your mom. Many of us have driven by, there's a street in honor of your mom. She was such an impactful uh, teacher Same. that, um, for those of you who drive from yeah. the 405 to UCI on University, uh, if you know where Ridgeline is going up to Turtle Rock, if you turn right, that's Rosa Drew Lane, and that's your mom, right? That's my mom. Yeah. My wow. mom was a first grade teacher at Vista Verde School for 30 something years, um, and Vista Verde is now, uh, it, the school was moved. So it's now closer to UC Irvine, but it used to be right near Strawberry Farms. And she was a first grade teacher who, uh, she was a, you know, five foot tall, you know, redheaded, like, you know, bundle of joy who did a lot to let people know that we need to really value multicultural issues. And she just really became a very beloved teacher throughout Irvine. Our school, Vista Verde, it was open to anyone in Irvine. It was the year-round school, and it drew from all over Irvine, not just the community. So she she had students from all over Irvine. And yeah, a, a while ago, the mayor of Irvine, Larry Agrin, former mayor, called and said that they wanted to name this street after her. And so Rosa Drew Lane, that was my mother was Rosa Drew. That's, Very proud that, of that. That's a great story and a great tribute. How about, Thank you. Well, I guess just the one, you know, comment about the, you know, I've, I've been seeing the emails about these, you know, anti-blackness or inclusion diversity classes that uh, are coming from Doug Haynes's office. And I think, yeah, I really, I really would want to, I really would, I would like to, I'm interested, but you're so busy in your life. Yeah. Can you speak to that at all? Because in fact, even, even overall, you're like, wow, the, the sensitivity that it takes for these issues. And, <laughs> you know, you're like, is this possible? I mean, because everybody's work, working so hard in whatever they're doing. You know, yeah. Can you speak to that? I think you know what I'm talking about. Sure. Yeah, I do. I do. I wish I didn't know, like, just the, you know, I mean, the amount that we are all working right now. It's like 
my head is spinning a lot of the times with so much is going on. And I guess I can maybe speak to it just more personally, not as any sort of telling other people what to do. Because yes, I even feel that this sort of focus on really valuing diversity, you know, what this work I was involved with for so long, it kind of got away from me, right? Because of the busyness of life. Like I, you know, for five years, I was just totally more than that. I mean, when I left USF after doing my postdoc there, I worked at UC San Francisco as a diversity trainer. That's the work I was doing at UCSF for a few years before I came back to Orange County. So really, it was like for seven years, I was just completely immersed in this work. And then the busyness of life took over, you know, taking care of my mother when she was sick, you know, having a baby, having a different career that that pieces I haven't even mentioned on here. So many things. And suddenly this sort of challenging white supremacy or doing anti-racist work was not the focus of my life, even though it was always in my heart. And I think that, you know, this past year and the killing of George Floyd and many other anti-Black murders that are happening, you know, right in front of us. And the protests really made me have to look in the mirror and ask myself, am I proud of myself and what I am doing to make this world a better place around racial issues? And my answer was no, like, I'm not, I'm not doing enough right now for myself, for what I value, you know? And so There's different things I've been working on since then, but one of them was to say, yes, I I had that same, I don't know if I can fit in time for this class on the history of Black protests. (laughs) Like, there's like so many other things I have to do. But, you know, I think for myself, I realized I'm going to do those other things differently. I'm going to do those other things better when I understand this better and and I'm a part of a community that's really working on this together. Jessica Drew DePaz, thank you so much. Thank (laughs) Thank you, Kevin. It's a pleasure to chat with you and thank you for having me. Thank you again to Jessica Drew DePaz, Director of Mindfulness Services at UCI's Susan Samueli Integrative Health Institute for all her insights into mindfulness, racism, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It was very meaningful. Thank you. And coming up next on KUCI is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra. Stay tuned. It will be right up. If you'd like to hear this interview or any of my prior interviews, they are available to listen to 24-7 at www.bossenmeyer.com. Comments and suggestions are welcomed at kboss at KUCI.org. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm your host, Kevin Bostonmeyer, thanking you for listening and also reminding you that the COVID-19 battle is going in the right direction. But don't forget, keep physically distancing, wearing that mask, and get that vaccination as soon as possible. Have a great rest of your day, and we will see you next week. So long, everybody.